everyone. Welcome to Inside and Beyond podcast, where we continue to look inside and beyond to understand the true capabilities of the human mind and the nature of reality. I'm your host, Natalia Fomichenko. My guest today is Sky Nelson Isaacs. Sky is a physics educator, speaker, author, and a lifelong accomplished multi-instrumentalist musician and songwriter. He was raised under the teaching of Sri Swami Satchinanda, whose motto is Truth is One, Pass Ameni. He has a master's, bachelor's, and a teaching credentials in physics, with close to 10 years of classroom experience. He has written two books, Living in Flow, The Science of Synchronicity and How Your Choices Shape Your World, and Leap to Wholeness, How the World is Programmed to Help Us Grow, Heal, and Adapt. Sky founded the Synchronicity Institute in 2019, and has published books, articles, and various other forms of media aiming to establish synchronicity as a tool for human advancement in the 21st century. Sky, welcome to the show. Good morning. It's good to see you. It's good morning for you. It's uh, very <laughs> good evening for me. It's <laughs> how, how time Across the world. Exactly, exactly. Well, so in this episode, I would like to talk to you about the key ideas that you mentioned in your books, which are living in flow and leap to wholeness. And essentially, I would like to discuss the nature of synchronicity from the physics perspective and how mm -hmm. this understanding can help us live in flow and uh, in in more fulfilling and meaningful way. And I also would like to cover what we need to understand about the nature of reality so that we can grow and heal mm -hmm. as we live. <laughs> so let's unpack it one by one then. Uh, let's start with synchronicity. What is synchronicity? And I have to say that I have interviewed uh, Chris Mackey before, who you might know. Chris is a good friend, yeah. Yes, and uh, <laughs> I know that uh, synchronicity is some sort of uncanny coincidence when for instance, your car breaks in the middle of the night and then the next person that stops turns out to be a person <laughs> who understands this model of car very yeah. well. So is this understanding correct? Is the definition correct? And if it is, what can you say about the nature of such coincidences? Are those random or actually meaningful? Well, I like to think of synchronicity as broadly as I, as I need to, to make it a useful concept. Mm -hmm. So I started, you know, thinking and understanding synchronicity through the work of Carl Jung and some books I read, um, sort of new age books in my twenties. Um, but I began to see that they were, these experiences of coincidence were more than just interesting or funny or uh, hilarious. They were, um, useful. So I started to think of synchronicities as a spectrum or a continuum, not just is it or isn't it, but mm -hmm. how meaningful is a situation? How does it serve a bigger picture of the story of my life? So a lot, every event is in some sense synchronistic, depending on how it connects to the future outcomes that you're imagining or, or working towards. And the mm -hmm. question becomes, how does this situation happening right now, this argument with a family member, this uh, getting fired from a job, this offer of a job, this decision between two jobs, you know, um, 
all the decisions we make in a given day play into the, the story of our lives. And so they all have some kind of synchronistic nature to them. How, mm-hmm. what is the outcome of this choice and how does it lead to the future I either want more of, or I'm, I'm actually trying to change my patterns and have less of that future. Mm, interesting. But then if we come back to that example of a car being broke in the middle of the night, when, you know, the fact of this other person who knows a lot about these cars does not really depend on our choices. It just happens to be there. Is it random that he appeared to be at the right time, uh, in the right place or not? There's a story just, just like that in the book, um, around a Dodge, specifically a Dodge mechanic, right? They have this Dodge van. They're stuck in the middle of the desert. It's a woman and her teenage daughter. And they're like, Oh my God, what are we going to do? We're stuck Mm -hmm. and a little scared. And it's, it's a campground that's pretty sparse. So it's not that many people around and, you know, they don't know anybody. And, Within a, f- a half an hour or something like that, over the lip of the desert comes this man walking and says, I, s- I see you're having trouble with your starter. I happen to know how to work on Dodges. I'm a Dodge mechanic. I can check it mm-hmm. out for you. <laughs> and so, it was, you know, he worked on cars. He worked on those cars. He was able to get in there with like a paperclip or something and, and rig it up to, to last long enough and then give them the address of the nearby gas station, you know, 20 miles down the road. He said, this will get you there Super and you have to f- get it fixed. The way I look at that situation is there are hundreds of possible avenues for history to unfold upon, mm-hmm. like a tree or a delta of a river or something like that. And the question is, which avenue are we going to find ourselves on? Mm-hmm. And when you when water goes up through the mm-hmm. sap of a tree, you know it goes onto many any one of many different branches. Mm-hmm. So then, some of those branches have dodge mechanics on them, right? And most of them don't. Mm-hmm. So the question is not how did we randomly attract this positive experience to us? It's not a force of attraction. Mm-hmm. It's a selecting between these multiple possibilities in what we might call the multiverse. This is the way I see it. And it's mm-hmm. not proven or accepted generally, but it works. I think that we're selecting between these options. And what we need is a way to preferentially select the option that matches our need. This one right here with the, Mm-hmm. Dodge mechanic. Mm-hmm. So there's this connection between the present moment where we're making decisions down here and some kind of future possibilities. My idea is that we weigh those possibilities. We add weight to them. So this one becomes heavier because of our intention or because of our anticipation of that experience. And by becoming heavier, the things that lead to it also become more likely. So this whole branch becomes more likely. Mm. So that, that person who was traveling through the, the, the highway in Nevada or wherever it was, decided to stop for the night there the night before. He could have stopped somewhere else. But all of that comes together to serve the experience that, that these people were having in that moment. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. But when, where is it, where is the balance between things happening randomly? Like, for instance, when... Uh, he decided to stop there um, for a night and um, that in the future led to him meeting this family with a broken car and something that we intentionally choose, like we intentionally want to have someone helping us. So we anticipate the help and therefore we increase this probability. I understand of having someone to help us. So mm. where is this balance between something that 
is our choice and depends on us and synchronicity happens and something right. that leads to it without our understanding and knowledge of why it is actually happening. Mm -hmm. Well, it's related to what I hear the question being something like around a very important question. Could the, the woman who is stuck with her car, could her need force the man to make certain decisions the day before yeah. to stop at that campground and show up? And yeah. that is a, a world, a worldview of, of objectivity. The world is actually out there somewhere happening mm -hmm. and we're somehow influencing it external from the exit from the outside. Mm -hmm. And you have to let go of that mindset if you're going to understand without adding a new force. I don't believe physics has extra forces, right? We have mm -hmm. gravity, electromagnetism, and the strong and weak nuclear forces. Those are the entire array of forces. What I think shows up in the case of synchronicity is looking at information. You have 10 different branches and it's very important to understand the world as subjective or relational mm. so that the world from my perspective is one thing. And I can describe the whole world from my perspective. If mm -hmm. I want to switch to your perspective, I have to let go of everything that I know to be true, all the, all the measurements I've made in order to understand the world from your perspective. Mm -hmm. And then there's this, that's 1% principle, subjectivity or relationality. The other is consistency. So that whenever we meet, our worlds match up. I see. So there's no objectivity, but there's the apparent objectivity because you've got the subjective reality that we're all in, each of us. And then when we meet, those are the worlds meet up together, kind of like a virtual reality. I and see. And so the woman who's got her Dodge van broken down, her world, that's what's happening. And she selects out of the various possible outcomes where there's this, also this person nearby who can help. But if you want to look at it from his perspective, to drop the information about her and what happened to her, focus on his experiences. And it all is consistent, but it's not objectively logical to our brains. I see. And when you say virtual reality, what do you mean by that? Well, what I mean is that the world you experience in virtual reality is rendered right before you. Mm -hmm. It's on a computer somewhere, but all that exists is the very room that you're in. Mm -hmm. The rest of the virtual world is not actually in existence. There's no objective rendering of it somewhere in the world that you haven't seen yet. Mm -hmm. it, hasn't, it hasn't been made into form. When you walk into a room in virtual reality, that world becomes part of the reality for you. I see. And in the same way, what we observe subjectively becomes part of our reality when we make that measurement of it. I see. Also, in one of your books, you mentioned that the world is pre-programmed. Is that right? And, and how does this affect the choices that we make out of our free will? If that exists? I don't think of the world as pre-programmed, um, but I do think that the study of synchronicity has led me to think about destiny a bunch. If you're on this tree of all the possibilities and one of the outcomes is more meaningful than the others, say this one, then if you, if there's a way to preferentially get to that outcome, not through saying, I'm going to do that with my willpower, but through practicing, maybe being in flow, having intention, but also putting your mouth, feet where your mouth are and being in integrity and you know, doing all the things you need to do to create that and letting go of the outcome is another big piece, right? I don't know what the specific outcome I'm actually going to get is, but if I focus on my intention, something will probably emerge that I didn't expect, which gets me to my outcome. Mm, I see. So that's how we 
come to the idea of living in flow. So this is not yeah. about influencing this set of probabilities with our pure willpower, but it's about us being in flow, which then leads to events that we might not necessarily anticipate, but th those events would potentially help us on our right. journey. And that whole array of tree branches is, is pre-programmed in the sense that it's like all possible from the beginning. Mm -hmm. I but see. Which one actually occurs is definitely not pre-programmed. Mm -hmm. We know from quantum mechanics that the world is um, stochastic or random when it actually throws the dice at the end of the experiment. In the same way, I think that, that the physical world and synchronicity obeys the same type of law where um, the actual synchronicity you experience is not pre-programmed, not known, but it does have a sense of destiny or destination because mm -hmm. it, it aligns with where you're trying to get to in a way that you couldn't predict. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So what does it mean to live in flow and how is it different from going with the flow? <laughs> well, I use the word synchronicity and not serendipity because serendipity has this sense of positiveness, like everything is from, from a benefit. And then when something happens, it's bad, like we lose a job or a relationship or get sick. But those things can be synchronicities. They can be very much teaching moments that help you get to the next level of whatever you're seeking. You know, mm -hmm. if you have a, a dreaded illness, but it, you find yourself more at peace, that can be a synchronicity in the sense, or it can be seen that way, maybe if you want to. So I don't want to look at serendipity as a positive thing or a negative thing. I look at synchronicity as a neutral, meaningful experience that's unfolding because it's meaningful to us. In the same way, going with the flow is implying a sort of lack of willpower or abdication of responsibility. But the opposite of that, which is like holding tight to the reins, creates a sense of stress and um, uh, control over others. And we see how both of those things don't really work all the time. Mm -hmm. What Csikszentmihalyi talked about was letting go of the worry about which of those you're doing. Let go of the worry about control. Don't let go of control. Let go of the worry, the sense in your mind that you've got to do it right. You've got to somehow be in control all the time or mm -hmm. let go of control. We all want to get it right, you know, but sometimes getting it right involves letting go of the outcome you were expecting and allowing something else to emerge. And how does it help us to live a more fulfilling life in a way? Because I'm trying to think if, for instance, we are given a terminable disease and that's definitely not something that's in our plan, for instance. and we try to, obviously, if we try to give up the worry about it, we might feel more at peace, but still it just doesn't feel like our life has become more fulfilling in a way. So how does this concept of living in flow help us to get more synchronicity? It's going to be very different for each person. And I think of synchronicity as a very personal experience. So I couldn't tell somebody else what the meaning of a situation is for them. Mm -hmm. And somebody else couldn't tell me, oh, you know, that number came up 13. That, that means you got to take that bus. Like that's up for me to decide how I interpret the, the interactions that I have with my life and my story. So I want to really emphasize the autonomy that people have in, in their relationship to the symbolic events that happen to them. With that for you, for each person, how do you relate to your life experiences and can you see 
what meaning they are bringing to you. Um, mm-hmm. I'll just share a little bit of my, my mother-in-law um, recently was diagnosed with cancer. I'm and sorry to hear. Well, she, she got an operation and she's cancer-free oh, a month wow. later. So Congratulations. we're delighted. You know, we're really delighted. And in the process, I had some really nice conversations with her, like lifelong deepening conversations with her around what it means to allow people to love you, you know, to let mm-hmm. in love. And for, for those of us who are very type A and go-getter and successful, um, sometimes letting those relationships of support in can be very, very hard. But we're wanting that in some way. And I don't think that creates the disease, but it, it allows the disease to be meaningful in a way that we wouldn't expect, I think. Interesting. Do you think that the fact that she lets love in and let go of worry to some extent when she was diagnosed, help her to get rid of the disease? I don't think it's that simple. I appreciate the question. I don't. Th- I think that sort of reflects a control mindset. Like mm-hmm. if I just figure out how to go with the flow or get into flow, I can then control the bad situations. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel repelled against that, that tempting desire to just have another way to control the world. Mm-hmm. For me, synchronicity is always an option to look inside. How do I adjust my own uh, perception of me and my life, my experiences? And that doesn't mean necessarily being healthy or unhealthy. doesn't mean being rich or poor. doesn't mean one condition or another. It's, a, it's a, how we relate to our own lives is, is in some sense free to us to decide. And so I know for me, like, you know, right now I'm dealing with uh, tremors in my, my body that weren't there a couple of years ago. My hand is shaky and makes it hard to play piano. But I'm also aware of the desire that I have to continue to do my physics research and pull away a little bit from performing. Mm-hmm. And it's allowing me to take myself a little less seriously in the performance aspect and to enjoy my, uh, be a little less self-conscious because I'm a little bit more uncontrolled and raw. And so I have my own personal experience with that sense of like, well, it's not what I would have chosen if my ego was in charge, but it's serving me in some ways that are really, really useful and and meaningful to me. So I see it as a synchronicity. That's beautiful. And if we talk about synchronicity, that is very, very evident. Like you mentioned before, some symbols appearing constantly that it's, it's hard to ignore. Like if you have, if you see a number so many times during the day uh, or, 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 or some extended period of time. And it, it's just so uncanny. Can it be explained by physics somehow? The fact that this particular symbol is appearing with such consistency? It's not a yes or no question. Um, there's a phenomenon, I think it's apophenia, that is the brain's ability to pick out patterns preferentially mm. so if you you know i used to do this when i was younger like every time it was 11 11 p.m i was so excited yeah one, 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 one. i, I do just, this too i just I stare at the clock until it's gone you know <laughs> but um it's very limited in its usefulness because i'm really looking for a sign to tell me whether what i'm the choice i'm making is right or wrong um that's not a very useful portable <laughs> device right um and i found it to be less than obviously consistent so, um, I don't dis- disregard it, 
I think what might be a more sophisticated understanding of that phenomenon is what many indigenous cultures, at least in the U.S. and, and other places have understood, which is a symbolic language of nature. That the, the experiences that come across your path, whether it's an animal or I think a person or an experience, is symbolically there to represent something for you. So more sophisticated than the number 13 is whatever, um, whatever the circumstances in front of you to interpret that in a meaningful or symbolic way. Mm. I do think numbers, I don't want to disregard any kind of meaningfulness. I want to take away somebody's, you know, understanding of that, that they have, but I find them to be hard to pinpoint in any way. And so less useful than looking at the real experiences you're having in your personal life, trying to understand where they fit. So what you're saying, if I understand correctly, is not about looking for specific meaning of a symbol, but rather paying attention to the circumstances surrounding the times when you see the symbol and trying to understand better what's going on for you and how you can interpret it. Is that right? Yeah. And I think the language, I don't think there's a dictionary of symbols. I don't think there's an objective language that, you know, this means that, um, in my experience that I don't, I have nothing to say about other cultures that have their understanding, which is very clear. Um, but I, in my experience, the, the meaning of uh, the language of the conversation that I'm having in my life around synchronicity, like who shows up in my life on a given day or the argument I had with my family last weekend, or these experiences are symbolic, um, to me, mm -hmm. it's a language that I have. So in some sense, I'm choosing the symbols and nature's then saying, okay, and then I'm going to bring you this experience to represent that for you. Mm, I see. I'll give you an That's example. Yeah. I, um, I am doing some somatic therapy to help my body settle down into tremors. And um, we, we did an exercise where I got in touch with what it was like to be in kindergarten just sort of felt remembered the, the first day of kindergarten. Mm -hmm. It was like to like be with all these new kids and stuff. And I, I really felt it. It was really interesting to have that kind of really presence, living in flow kind of sense of doing whatever's in front of me. And the session was over and I went home and I thought I had the afternoon free to um, sort of relax. And I realized I had a meeting with um, two people from my, my men's group. And one of them is somebody I have a really tense relationship with. And kind of like I had in kindergarten with, you know, meeting new kids and not knowing how to deal with them. And mm -hmm. so that symbol, him showing up in my life for this meeting was, a, was a symbolic to me because I had just been experiencing that myself at that age. It was this sort of alignment between how likely is it that this guy would show up in my life right at that moment that I'm yeah. really feeling into what it's like to be dealing with that That's kind of situation. And how did you interpret this situation then? I was, I, I wanted to not adjourn the meeting. I wanted to, like, I'm, I can't do it, but I trusted that the situation was helpful to me because I trust synchronicity to bring me what I need. So I got on the phone and I had an actual, a very neutral experience, which is kind of healing for me, where it's like, mm. I didn't get in his face and he didn't, I didn't let him get in my face, but I stayed sort of with proper boundaries, which I never had when I was in kindergarten. Mm -hmm. And, um, so I got to heal that kindergartner's experience and, and have a better one. Interesting. So that's basically then ties back to the idea from your book on how synchronicity can help us heal. So if we accept 
the symbolic experiences without worry, we might actually realize that those are not scary for us and yeah. therefore heal along the way. Yeah. And, and seeing like, I always see therapy or personal growth or meetings of any kind as part of a bigger workshop. <laughs> so um, one more quick story. I was, at a, I was at a workshop recently where we did an exercise around feedback and I've gotten a lot of feedback. I've practiced giving and taking feedback. So I decided not to do the exercise. Just wasn't, I didn't need to. And I was practicing like backing off a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, later that night, I had an interaction with the person that was giving me feedback that I didn't ask for. <laughs> it was exactly the feedback I didn't want to get because I knew it wouldn't really help me. It would set me off on a different tangent. So the workshop is much bigger than the moment where we're actually practicing something. It's all the circumstances around that that are working together to create a story in which you can heal. That makes sense? Yeah, it does. So in order to heal and in order to live in flow, besides the obvious, what we've just discussed, accepting synchronicity and letting go of worry, what else can we do? I also know that you talk about Lorax process in your book. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about what this process is about and how it also help you heal? You know, none of what I talk about is really new. I got a lot of these ideas from my upbringing around um, integral yoga, the idea that truth is one, and but paths are infinite. Mm-hmm. We can do any different way of looking at these truths and come to some similar understanding of our own nature. Um, so the Lorax process is simply a modern way to look at this, but it's listen, listen to your cir circumstance, right? Don't judge it right away. Notice what's happening. Don't be mindless and just move forward through your day without noticing the situations. Listen to what people say. Listen to what's behind the question. Listen to when they get in your way and block your progress, like notice these experiences and how they feel inside you and imagine what it might feel like for somebody else. What might be going on for them? And then open, open your mind too often when a certain situation happens, like um, any of the situations we just dealt with um, my friend, uh, my, the meeting happening at work, you know, when I get home from the therapy and like, I'm not going to do that. No, I open my mind. I, I'm going to join the meeting. It's on my calendar. There's a reason for me to be there. Trust that. So listen, open your mind, then reflect. Spend some time, whether it's 30 seconds or a day or two weeks or a year. Before you say yes or no, you might want to spend some time looking at how does this plug into other experiences? How does this experience with the, the guys in my meeting connect to the fact that I just got out of a therapy session where I'm really feeling what it's like to be in kindergarten again with kids mm -hmm. I don't really understand. I made that connection. That connection in the reflection process allowed me to feel more trusting. Ah, there's something for me here to do and experience. I'm going to go mm -hmm. for it. And then the second R is release. It's L-O-R-R-A-X. So releasing is like, I realized that you can't just reflect and change your behavior. You have to let go of what you're attached to. So... I was attached to lying down and resting and recovering. And here I was thrust into a sort of triggering situation. I had to release my worry and my attachment to, to that, how I thought it was going to go. How do you release it? Well, I think everyone has different ways of doing that. Um, 
one way to do it is to understand that you're part of a process that's going to end up better than you started. And so whatever you're attached to is actually in the way of a resolution. It might feel really nice for me to lay down and skip the meeting, but the resolution I got from that meeting was way more satisfying than that kind of relief. So mm. through experience, you know, weighing those options, putting the, the long-term outcome first can help. And once you've listened, opened, reflected, and released, then you're in a place where you can act and you don't want to forget to act and make a choice. So there's this outgoing assertive part to it as well. Mm -hmm. um, and then you make a choice and then you see where you've responded to the situation as it is in front of you, not as it was in your head mm -hmm. beforehand. And then the X just simply stands for don't give up. This is a process. Every decision is a, is a moment in the cycle. Go back to listening. Just because you follow this process doesn't mean you're going to make the right choice. But if you go back to listening again and opening your mind, you'll start to get into alignment with living in flow. So X means times Don't, X uh, repeats. <laughs> yeah, that is good. I haven't heard that. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, um, that's that's super powerful and inspiring. And I guess that summarizes the yogic philosophy in a way um, about how you need to live life in terms of awareness, in terms of reflection, and in terms of continuous learning from your experience. That's yeah. beautifully, beautifully summarized. I would like to talk now more about the reality itself. I know you're a physicist and that's something that I'm always curious to ask my guests on what, what the reality is, what is the nature of reality? I know that in your book, you talk about cosmos being holistic. I assume that it is the same idea as holographic universe. If it is, could you tell us more what it means and what are the implications for, for our daily life from that? Well, I would say my, the, the underlying description of my interest in physics, my research is the, the paradigm of, of reductionism, which is where everything can be thought of in terms of its pieces or parts like chemistry, where every part of our body can be reduced to carbon or hydrogen or nitrogen mm -hmm. or oxygen. Chemistry is a great reductionist, reductionist system. And we sort of think of the whole world as that way. Everything can be separated. Science is, is CNA, comes from the Latin first cut or to know to cut. So we think that we can know things by cutting them into pieces. Mm -hmm. But for, with the advent of systems theory, we were learning about the whole system in macroscopic terms. And actually, in physics, there's some examples of, of things that are non-reductionist. This is really important. They're not often seen in this way. So I'm trying to make it, this is not new information, but I'm trying to make it more clear. This is a paradigm shift between reductionism and holism. Mm -hmm. And the example I'll use, I mean, the example is light. Light itself is non-reductionist non or not only reductionist. And the, the example I'll use is a very simple device that I got from the Exploratorium Science Museum. As a teacher, it's a pinhole camera developed in the 1000 AD. You just take a box, a cardboard box that's dark inside, put a pinhole in one end, allow the light to shine through to the back. What you see is, if you pointed at an image of the city, you see a picture of the city on the back of the box, upside down. Mm -hmm. But you didn't use a lens like my glasses. 
Usually we use a lens for cameras or glasses and we we're not surprised, right? Without mm -hmm. a lens, you can do the same thing mm -hmm. using just a pinhole. And the reason this is holistic and it challenges the notion or common notion of space is because that one tiny point in space contains information about the entire scene all around. Mm -hmm. And in some sense, each photon is carrying image about the information about the entire image, the entire scene coming through the box. We like to think of space as a map between one point and another, but that can't be true with the pinhole camera. There's only one point, the pinhole. That corresponds to every point on the scene, the picture that you create. I see. So it's, it's actually mind-blowing to realize that there's one point in space that corresponds in a map to every part of the pixel in the image. Mm -hmm. And what I show in my work is just, which is obviously well-known already, but I, I demonstrate this with an image of, uh, you, can, you can imagine a picture of a city and you throw pixels at the screen one at a time. And gradually, you start to see what the image is. It's a city, right? Because if there's enough pixels, you see enough data. Get to like mm -hmm. 200,000 bits and suddenly you start to go, oh, I see what it is. It takes, it takes that many data points. But you can actually do the same thing with patterns. You can break this image down into stripes across the screen using the Fourier representation. And this is a mathematical, wonderful tool that um, it's been around for a couple hundred years. And when you throw those patterns at the screen, you get something that looks like chaos until you throw enough data at the, at the screen, about 200,000 data points, you start to see oh, it's the image of the city appearing, mm -hmm. just as they did with the points. But now every piece of the data is a holistic image of the whole screen, a pattern that goes across the whole screen. The patterns are like lines in certain directions, at certain rates. Yeah. You mix them all together in just the right way, boom, a complex, coherent image appears. That's a holistic image, whereas the one with the pixels is a reductionist version of the same image. Yeah, that's interesting. So many questions arise. So essentially, you're saying that despite the fact that we might not see sometimes the entirety of the world and, and how it all sort of falls together, it doesn't mean that it doesn't fall together, right? So <laughs> it's just because we don't have enough information or data um, or tools to see it, it doesn't mean that it's not there. So you're suggesting that the world is already, you know, uh, complete enough for us to to not add anything to it in a way. I like that interpretation. Yeah, um, I, I, that's your interpretation, and I support yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> um, what, what I the way I, I think about it is um, very similar to that. We think about the the fundamental assumption we make about the universe is that it comes out of nothing. Mm -hmm. The big bang is how does the world explode into something from nothing? That's a, a fundamental assumption that the question is even right. How do we get something from nothing? And most of us go through our, our lives without ever realizing we're asking a specific question that reflects a specific worldview. But that worldview is not the worldview you would get if you studied Fourier transforms. Because in a Fourier transform, you don't get something from nothing. You get something, in a sense, from everything. If I take all every point on the screen as um, white, and I start erasing certain patterns, by removing certain patterns, I reveal a remaining image. 
That's one way to look at it. Mm-hmm. Another way is to say in the, in this mathematics, if I want to get a single point in space, I need every single frequency present to give me that very sharp line. Mm-hmm. There's this inverse relationship. The, the more narrow the point in space, the more wide the, the spectrum in, in frequencies. So there's, there's a sense in which to create something, you need to start with everything in the frequency representation. Mm. So That's I take that, that philosophy of like, instead of how do we get something from nothing? How do we get something from everything? What if we start with all possibilities and have to reduce them or erase them in order to reveal what we actually experience? So according to this explanation, then the Big Bang was just one of the possibilities or it wasn't, or it, there it wasn't the Big Bang. I don't want to get into the Big Bang because I don't necessarily agree with it. <laughs> I think, see, I'm, I'm, I'm saying the question itself is, is ill-posed. So mm-hmm. I couldn't offer a better explanation for that question. Um, but if I have my way, it would be a much longer inquiry over another lifetime into what, what is the nature of that question. I don't have a better answer or question for you, but that's the, the concern I have with starting from a certain mindset and assuming you understand the universe in a certain way and then trying to answer that. Whereas I've posed a problem with the question itself that I think needs to be addressed. I see. So what's your view on time and space then? Well, this is my view. So um, another way to look at sort of the same problem is understanding light traveling through space. If you're not a physicist and you, you haven't actually delved into some of the complex nuances, you think of light traveling across space and time evenly, like a bus or a car through space. Mm-hmm. And physicists have more abstract ways of thinking about it. I haven't heard this particular way of thinking about it addressed, though, except in a few places. That for light itself, the space that it travels, is faster you go to closer to light speed, it shrinks. And the time gets slower. So the time sort of shrinks also. Mm-hmm. And it, there's only one speed at which that goes away completely, and that's the speed of light. So that doesn't pose a problem for most calculations, because most calculations are around um, matter traveling fast and relativistic. But for light itself, we have to ask ourselves, does it make sense for light to travel across space from the sun to the earth to think of it that way? Is our brain's way of thinking about that that makes sense? If there's no time and no space, It comes back to this question of reductionism. You can't think of that whole space between the sun and the earth as separate points. Because for light, there's no time and space separating them. Mm. So you're forced into questioning your understanding of reductionism and space and time from your perception and seeing, oh, there's this interval of, you know, 96 million miles or whatever it is that actually exists as a whole. For the light, it's it's sort of a quantum leap, if you will. Although I don't like that term, <laughs> but okay. this is where we get into the notion of holism: that space exists as a whole under certain conditions. We can't reduce it down to pieces and parts. We can't say that we're x distance apart, because in some sense, um, Gilbert Lewis in the 1920s described this phenomenon, and he said, "Everything that shines light on you is in virtual contact with you." So the Earth is in virtual contact with the Sun. Because light is instantaneously connecting the two. Not instantaneously. It, it still takes time to travel, but that's from our perspective. Mm. 
I see. So then if we take an example of time in this case and our conventional perception of past, present and future, does it mean then, again, it's a subjective perception of past and future and what exists is only present? Um, that's one way to look at it. I, I have to think about that. I like the way you're thinking. <laughs> physicists don't have answers. You know, physicists <laughs> have questions and they, they challenge the way that people answer them in the old way and think of new ways. Um, the way that I think about past, present, and future is a little different than most a common way of thinking about it. If you're on a tree and that tree is connected to other tree branches, so all the different objects in the world are splitting off into possibilities. When you interact with another tree, everything on that branch that you interact with becomes your reality. So when, when the woman was in the desert and she was stuck and the man, the mechanic shows up, she suddenly was in a reality in which he yesterday had gotten to the desert and camped. Mm -hmm. So she's essentially changing the past, but not really because the past wasn't actually determined yet. Hmm. It was, it was an for unfolding her. for her. Exactly. You get it. Mm -hmm. So there's a sense in which instead of thinking about past as fixed, present as happening now and future as open possibilities, it's more relevant to think about um, the past can be either fixed or not fixed, depending on whether you've observed it or not. People I that I haven't observed, like the mechanic, may, may be here or may not be here, depending on what happened last night. But um, once I observe it, it's part of my fixed past. If I read about it, it's part of my fixed past. So this is really not, nothing, past is not that useful, but fixed or not fixed, determined or not determined, is the more relevant concept. And that has to do with information that you've received about a situation. Yeah. I have this question, kind of an example that um, I, I want to get your view at. For instance, let's take an example of a patient who is being checked for cancer. Mm -hmm. And this patient doesn't know if he has cancer or not. But then once the report is ready, then it will be fixed, the outcome, whatever outcome there is. And to the until the point when the patient reads this report, does he have a better chance of not having a cancer in a way than he would have if he reads the report and the report would say that there is a, a chance, a good chance of him having a malignant tumor? I don't know. Um, I think it's... it's um, Tricky, again, synchronicity is very subjective, and we can't run experiments again and again to test whether we're right or wrong. So um, I, I want to really be empathetic and sensitive to people in this situation who are really struggling. And um, I've been in situations where I really wanted an outcome, and I sort of tried to concentrate on it and focus and sort of have control over myself. And um, I wouldn't say that that control served me very well. Mm -hmm. in, in really in the big picture, like I got more tense, I got more self-focused. So um, I've certainly tried to con to do that and to make outcomes better until I know what the real outcome is. Um, mm -hmm. Even just going to a baseball game feels like <laughs> crossing my fingers, you know. Mm -hmm. but, um, 
but I feel like for me, that's not been super healthy way to think about it. And I, I don't know if it's effective. I don't want to say we haven't done real experiments on it. Um, but um, it's just, I'm so grateful that my mother-in-law is feeling well. And I tried to let go of the process and focus on, you know, what she was getting out of her experience and how to be there for her in the process. And, and in a sense, it's, it's like um, really letting in the appreciation of the experiences as they are, not, not necessarily trying to understand what the meaning is. Sometimes the meaning comes much later. Sometimes the understanding of how this situation mm-hmm. fits into my story comes much later. And so in the meantime, listen, open, reflect, release, and then choose whatever action comes next. Thank you. That's, that's beautiful and super empowering as well. What would you offer to our listeners who would like to understand more about your books, about this process, about any efforts that you provide to essentially live in flow and have a more meaningful life? Well, I created the Living in Flow course, which you have in the show notes, livinginflowcourse.com. Yep. And I make that accessible, really accessible. In fact, it's free to most of the people on my email list. Um, it's got a high density of content, exercises you can practice. My view of synchronicity is it's not about the external or flow, not about the external um, world, not about the chemicals in our blood, the endorphins or whatever. It's about our feelings and how we relate to our emotional decisions and patterns. It's about patterns. And living, living in flow course is designed to help you notice your patterns and then decide how you want to adjust them if you, if you want to. And, and that allows you, when you see the pattern that's getting in the way of having fun, when you see the pattern that's in the way of you know, being successful and finding a new job, you see the pattern that's in the way of having an intimate relationship with your partner, then you, f- you feel empowered. You say, oh, I don't have to think that thought, or I don't have to make that choice. I can go out and do the thing I want to do in this case mm-hmm. differently. That's what the Living and Flow course is all about. That's interesting. So essentially you gain more control then about your life? It's all paradox. (laughs) Interesting. Well, thank you so much, Sky. It was such an amazing conversation. Lots to think about. Uh, Best of luck in all the work that you do and hopefully you will be able to do lots of music um, going forward. I appreciate that. 